Welcome everyone to the Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is the guy who has crushed every 8-bit arcade game, Contra included. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Don't hate the game, but the player who chose it. The Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 208, Two Player, is sponsored by Duel to Despair, featuring radioactive heroin. Stop ruining it. Pete, we have to mention that in this past week, Freeform and Cloak and Dagger had a presence at the Gigundulous Disney upfront presentation to those Madison Avenue advertisers. And uh, though there is no official announcement on season three, you have to imagine that uh, that that's a vote of confidence. I cannot foresee a scenario where they're not allowed to carry this story forward into a third season. Surprises happen. But again, being inundated with ads each week for the core freeform um primetime schedule matt Un- unless they've got something up their sleeve i don't see them having uh another marvel show to put on here to supplant this and i think they're happy with uh cloak and dagger as the key audience is well, I know that once Cloak and Dagger is over, Pete, I'm looking forward to that uh, mermaid show that's on Freeform. There's a whole city down there. And I look forward to the corporate synergy that'll have a rerun of The Little Mermaid prior to that episode airing. Yes. With that, Pete, take us to the recap. A pinball pings around a machine as Baron Samity finds a figurine of Tyrone in his arcade. Tandy implores Ty to wake as smoke continues to pour out of him. O'Reilly investigates the crime scene at the Viking motel and overhears the girls recovered are too creeped out to talk. She calls them victims, but a male detective is dismissive of that distinction. The owner of the motel was already picked up by police and bailed out by his lawyers an hour ago. He's out of business, right? Kid, it'll be open again in a month. They don't call it the world's oldest profession for nothing. On a street corner, Leah entices a man looking for coffee, who Andre suddenly tases and jacks his SUV. Despite his migraines, Andre is okay to drive. Vita is summoned by Tandy on the phone and can't find her aunt, but packs her Voodoo essentials. She leaves before she sees a cracked door, revealing Auntie laying on the floor. At the church, Ty wakes briefly, and Tandy tells him he's going to be okay. She mistakes O'Reilly for Evita, who tells her she's just come from the motel. Father Delgado prunes flowers outside a sobriety center when Ty's mother comes to see him. He feels being a priest is a life he failed at. Nobody could protect Ty, but she's found a way they can save him. Evita has arrived at the church and is using her medical aspirations to help Ty. O'Reilly tells her that her aunt still isn't picking up. She's watched her aunt work, but this is like... Tyrone is transitioning, as if his fight-or-flight response is broken. Tandy explains when Ty gets scared, 
he opens a door. If he's not responding, maybe he's stuck wherever he taps into, where O'Reilly's more violent doppelganger got sucked into. Tandy mentions Papa Legba, which Evita immediately recognizes as Aloa, the guardian of the crossroads, a Vudan god, and Auntie's husband. As a Mambo, you have to marry Aloa. Kind of like a nun marries God, but not really. Evita sketches his vivet around, tie. Auntie always has Evita carry candy for Legba because he has a sweet tooth. If you want something from him, he's going to need an offering in return. Tandy takes the candy from Evita, who tries to get Legba to show them the way, but he doesn't answer. Tandy looks up and she and O'Reilly decide to jump into the darkness emanating from Ty. At the Roxxon gas station inside Ty, Tandy learns Legba comes in all shapes and sizes. O'Reilly sees Fuchs and Legba recognizes part of her from before after refusing to pay the fee demanded. Tandy gives her the candy. She got overcharged last time with a light dagger. Tandy looks through the telescope, but doesn't see the mall like last time, only an arcade. O'Reilly is alone as Legba assumes the form of Fuchs, who tells her Tandy has her path and she has to walk a different one. Tandy finds the figurine of Ty in a prize display case. Legba explains to O'Reilly, everything there is a trade. She gives him spearmint gum and goes to the mall. Tandy tells Baron Samity, who resides over the dead, she's there for Ty, who made his payment. He gave Samity his worries. Tandy offers to pay his debt, but Samity explains one thing is not equal to another. If she plays Ty's game and can convince him to leave, he'll let them both go. Samity snaps his fingers and Tandy sees Ty appear playing an arcade game. Ty's mother wants to give Delgado a file that could bring down every corrupt officer and politician in New Orleans to the FBI because she can't. A priest would have protection from revealing his source. He wishes he could help, but when he left St. Sebastian's, he left his collar behind. Andre has pulled over because of his pain and begs Leah for more. She tells him she can't go through it again, but he just needs enough to get them someplace safe. It'll be the last time he promises. She consents, and he's in the record store again where he flips through her bin and puts on some soothing music and attempts to open the door with his vivet on it. O'Reilly hears the music and mayhem drags her away. Evita asks Legba for the sight to see what's ahead and doesn't like the answer. Tandy tries to take Ty home, but he's engrossed in the video game he needs to finish before he loses a man. If he's going to finish this, he's going to need her help playing Duel to Despair. A series of stylistic cutscenes set up the story where Tandy's purse is stolen and they've been injected with radioactive heroin. Hey, don't ruin it. 
They must find and fight the man who did it. They beat a bunch of guys on the screen to clear the stage and go inside the game. That was just a warm-up. All of the guys are dressed the same, and the two Tandy took out just disappeared. None of it makes any sense, but Ty says that's the point. It doesn't have to. They fight, they win. As they enter level two, they've tracked down the place they're shipping the drugs from. They need to fight through the gangsters to get to the mastermind behind it all. O'Reilly and Mayhem enter the record store and reminisce about the Garden City Mall, where her dad used to hand her cash she'd blow on a manicure. Mayhem shows her the albums of the missing girls from the flyers. Evita is visited by Auntie, who sent her a message in the shells. It's her time to dance with the ancestors and take her place as Mambo. But Evita wants to go to college and medical school. Auntie says that's her being selfish. She's allowed to be. All her life, she's been laughed at for stinking up her purse with roots and giving voodoo tours. But she was born with the sight, chosen to be a voice to guide people. Nothing else matters. She has all the choices, but only one will save her man. If she does, she'd have to marry Aloha, one with dominion over the dead or dying. Auntie tells her to choose what she chooses, but do it with her head held high as she always does before disappearing. Delgado tells Ty's mother he felt like his collar was a prison ball and chain after killing a girl. His last words to Ty were, just go now. But she says there haven't been consequences for corrupt cops and politicians. He can't just take the files, though. In the eyes of the church, the information is only privileged if she makes confession. Ty and Tandy move on, locating the door to level three. She was never much of a gamer, but she is starting to think she missed her calling. They find themselves back in the motel. Evita melts a wax candle and decorates it. Ty and Tandy have tracked their greatest foe to the motel. She becomes overwhelmed, and Ty promises he's not leaving her. Evita collects flowers and a ring. Tandy tells Ty the game is a waste of time, and he has to stop playing. But he reminds her the screen said they have to cut down the walls. Tandy and Ty only have to go through one more room, the boss level, as Andre appears. But Tandy disappears. Mayhem looks over O'Reilly's chewed-up nails. She prefers the color poison. She explains Dad only took her to the mall so he could flirt with that bookstore manager. But O'Reilly reasons he took her to the mall because everything in the house reminded him of Mom. He was two parents to four kids and deserved some happiness, even if it was with a bookstore manager. Mayhem only sees the bad, but O'Reilly won't be able to catch Andre without her. She won't put her in a box. She just needs her to listen sometimes and allows her to drive as she symbolically paints her nails. Tandy tells Samity his game sucks, but he tells her 
not to hate the game, but the player who chose it. Evita puts on the ring and holds the flowers as she symbolically marries the wax figure she sculpted. Since Tandy stopped, Ty tells her they have to go all the way back to the beginning. She implores him to come back, but he says that's where they lose, and the only payoff is pain. The candle blows, and Auntie dances with the ancestors. Samity says Ty has taken too long, and Evita has made a choice in his stead with the wedding bouquet. A life for a life, the bouquet for a cloak. He snaps his fingers, and Ty and Tandy return to the real world. So does Mayhem, with knowledge of Andre, who's probably on the run just the way she likes them. She assures Tandy O'Reilly made it out and is in there too. Ty's mother makes her first confession in seven years, telling Delgado how she held Connors captive and finally let him use the bathroom after he gave her the information to clear Ty's name and the location of Billy's body. Connors found the bathroom done up in plastic sheeting where she shot him twice. She leaves the file. Andre straightens himself up and figures out his vivet is a series of musical notes, leaving Leah's body on the side of the road. As EMTs clear out Auntie's shop, Ty appears to Evita. Tandy arrives home for her mom, but finds evidence she's fallen off the wagon. Mayhem torches documents. Ty teleports in to comfort Tandy. Pete, let's get into some of the dark figures in this episode, and let's start with the car-boosting, and now apparently no longer with us, Leah. Well, I mean, it's not as if she hasn't made her choices. I find it a little concerning, obviously, one villain preying on another, and that she was forced to get this man to pay her the attention so that the car could be jacked. And then she is used for her energy, her memories, her pain, etc. But she did make conscious de- decisions to uh, do bad things. And I think insofar as the show is attempting a larger social message this season, particularly with, uh, with its focus on trafficking, the notion that Leah thought she was the hero hero of her own story and that she was a co-pilot in this venture, uh, it's proof that in that particular scenario, perhaps not quite a fully abusive one, but certainly one uh, involved in a world of abuse and misuse and using other people, uh, she was not the co-pilot. She was just another cog to be used up when Andre needed to... Uh, needed to gain some advantage from her and then literally leave her dead by the side of the road. In Andre, we continue to build to something love that they were able to incorporate through the mechanism of the video game, the name despair that we get to see it the way it's spelled in the comics that we get to see his comic presentation, you know, with the cloak and he has the horn and uh, the kids as well. While I did not love the integration of the 8-bit scenes uh, representative of the game that they're playing along with the plot, 
I think that uh, you certainly are right to mention that it was a it was a fun way to get the the rather crazy spelling of despair from the comics and some of those other comic uh, elements. It, it was an inventive way to get that into this show, which is you know kind of I don't want to say straight laced, but it's very it, this is a show that's that's built very very close to our reality. Uh, you know, we don't have spandex people jumping from rooftops and things of that sort in this show. So it was it was an effective way to bring all that in. What we might be seeing in the next couple episodes, the last two, as we head towards the end of the season, uh, learning more about his backstory. I, I won't spoil too much since somebody doesn't watch the previews. There are previews? I just assume that when it ends you you turn the tv off and you you go do something else uh pete let's talk about mom let's talk about adina johnson and i guess the first question i have for you is do we consider mom a murderer i mean she's she's killed uh connor's two gunshots matt that's tv code for we're not seeing you again true and also in a show that has attempted to some degree to have as another social commentary point the notion of justice and police brutality, police violence, um, uh, kind of institutional uh, allowing of such things. I won't go quite as far as to say institutional racism, but certainly, you know, oh, Uncle State Senator will help me out, and there's kind of the, the hidden mechanism there. I can only fault Mom for having having taken the law into her own hands. Now, I'm sure there would be people who would argue, but since the system is corrupt, she is finding justice with a capital J. Maybe, but I don't know the two wrongs make a right. You wonder how much of her decision to murder Connors uh, may have driven her husband away. Did she make him aware of her intentions and that's why he left before it happened? Was it a spur-of-the-moment type thing after uh, he left. I mean, obviously the, the sheeting is intentional, um, with the act there. Just want to point out Gloria Rubin. Um, you know, here's a veteran performer, you know, you go back to her work on ER and she doesn't often because of the nature of the show cloak and dagger, not, you know, cloaks, mom get a ton to do. And in this episode, these big moves here and this storyline that's been carved out for her, really a fan of this. She's phenomenal. Uh, between her her recent role on PETA program that I know you haven't seen and that we can't discuss uh, because secrets, but uh, that recurring role in Mr. Robot and this, I mean, somebody who... 50 plus years old is certainly continuing to be well employed and be employed in a variety of, you know, of interesting, uh, interesting fare here. I mean, two very, very different shows, Mr. Robot and Cloak and Dagger. I uh, see she's also had some stuff in The Blind Spot and shows like that. So it's a golden age of TV, even for Gloria Rubin, veteran of TV these 25 plus years. And though I don't watch it, uh, I have no doubt she's able to aptly play a male robot. Oh, Pete. One day you're going to watch that show and you will... Will you see things coming? I don't know. No cheating, though. Anybody who has not seen Mr. Robot, if you decide to check out Mr. Robot, you can't read ahead. 
Uh, but Pete, let's bring it back to the MCU here. Mayhem's certainly a dark figure. And look, I know she kind of maybe killed some people in earlier episodes. Bad people, to be sure. Do we see here at the end of the episode Mayhem 2.0, kind of Mayhem redeemed? Well, that she's got O'Reilly inside there. I mean, Matt, will it be next episode or the season finale where O'Reilly can shoot straight now because she's got her her angry, dangerous side and her demure side all incorporated into one? Um, I liked the metaphor set up with the painting of the nails, the you know, tapping back into her more primal instincts. But at the same time, she's done some really over-the-top things. You have to wonder if O'Reilly as a person is going to be made to pay for what mayhem as a raged-filled doppelganger has done. Pete, let's now talk some light theories. And first one, I guess just more of an update as opposed to a full-blown theory. I guess this episode confirms that Tyrone is more a door as opposed to having the dark space inside him. A little bit. I still think it remains nebulous. And then the number of people who have been there and been to the record store and how they access it and the use of Voodoo and, and all of that, it, it, it is a metaphor and whether it's a place inside him or a place he's tapping into, as is mentioned in this, it, it's still a, a magic thing. Now, Pete, I have a question for you. You, a veteran of a Catholic school education, when is a priest legally and secularly no longer a priest? I mean, if you're, um, it's not a license. I mean, if if your your collar is taken from you, like course of law by the church. I don't think what he says that leaving his collar behind no longer makes him a priest. He could choose to not um, identify as a priest anymore, but by taking the confession, um, he remains one. That certainly seems to be what the show is presenting, and I would read it as he left the Catholic Church, not the Catholic Church, you know, pulled his credentials from him right so i I, again i was just interested as to this legal space in terms of do they know he had killed a girl um although matt it's not as if we've seen the the institution where i drew 16 years of schooling sometimes cover up crimes that aside and it's an important point certainly but that aside from the narrative i would assume that that the, the the local people overseeing him in New Orleans do not know about that transgression and just saw someone who was stepping away from, uh, you know, being a priest in the Catholic Church. I, I will also take the show at what it offers that kind of legally he still holds the title of priest and that that legal uh, ability to take a confession and to keep it uh, to keep it private. I wonder 
what the church's view on a priest seeking sobriety would be. They would have to, under point of law, recognize somebody needs help and is making an effort and look at that favorably, and I think compassionately as well. So I have to imagine that's rolled up in here. Particularly since he is in what the set decoration people uh, so charitably clearly labeled as, you know, a, uh, a substance abuse halfway house. That wasn't exactly the sign, but there was a sign there that made it clear he is in a place of recovery and uh, and healing. So whether it's a secular outfit or a sacred place where, where that's happening, he's clearly kind of objectively on the mend. Is Leah really dead? With two episodes left, I think yes. And I'm always interested in how a season paces itself. Usually, of course, in the big season finale, we have the big showdown. Then there are those exceptions, like Fargo season two, that puts it in the penultimate episode, then spends 55 minutes just exhaling from that and wrapping things up in a very kind of uh, concerted and slow manner. So could we end this episode with, oh no, Andre has fallen into the big vat of goo and is now dead. I wouldn't rule it out, although I don't know that this show nor the general flavor of the MCU is one to save a final showdown until the final act of a season, which is to say the final episode. Mayhem wanted control. She's got it. Will O'Reilly regret handing that over to her? I mean, I think regret in that, like, hey, guy who goes to get you five, uh, pardon me, one coffee with five sugars, you maybe shouldn't have called him a dog face, but not regret <laughs> in terms of, hey, you shouldn't have ripped off the throats of those three people letting blood spray everywhere and onto yourself, as you said, yes, I love to kill. How about uh, the mother of Tandy um, and falling off the wagon there, going on the bender? There are booze, pills, all sorts of things strewn around the kitchen. Chinese takeout, Matt. That's TV code for quick and delicious meal made by a hardworking <laughs> local business. Um, no, I think it is kind of TV code for a quick and dirty meal. Although I, I, I certainly don't, I don't think that's actually the case with Chinese food. Don't, uh, don't misunderstand dear listener. I think that's just, that's what set decorators do to show something fast and wild happen. You put a, an upturned bottle of whiskey there and you know, there, there was, there was a party here. Um, I feel bad for the character that she has fallen off the wagon. Um, again, it's kind of one of these things of does the show have a larger plan for her or was it like, Hey, we got renewed for season two. Everybody's coming back and we're going to come up with stuff. And then for season three, you go, Hey, you've had your arc. You're going to recur for four episodes or you're going to be special guest star for two episodes. Point being, Pete, I don't know how much story there is for mom in the future. Well, Pete, bringing us a future, future thoughts, we have an email here from our pal, William Cornegay, who says as follows. 
I wonder if Evita would have been so willing to marry the one who has dominion over the dead if she'd noticed the girl who looks like an angel was wearing her man's quote-unquote sweatshirt. When Tandy stated that she was willing to stay in PlayStation World with Tyrone, uh, it pretty much confirmed she was in love with him. This was in addition to her telling him life without him was miserable. Her loyalty to and passion for Ty was palpable. He's her lifeline. Can you imagine Tandy introducing a suitor to Tyrone? This is Ty, my BFF. I can't live without him. That potential relationship would be as dead as Detective Connors. If someone had told me that in the midst of a TV superhero explosion, my favorite show would be Cloak and Dagger, I would not have believed them. But this show does what I wish the DC CW shows would do. The seasons are shorter. The characters develop and grow. Not only is the city uh, that they live in relevant, it's not fictional. The other characters have aspects of their lives that have nothing to do with the titular duo. I'm very appreciative that this episode had no profanity nor blasphemy. I really hope we get a third season. If not, I'll be happy with the season finale uh, if it is as good as this episode. So, Pete, those thoughts there from William. Some really good points about the the DC stuff and how this matters. And then you think about the really topical things they're taking on in the trafficking, in the in the drugging of women uh, to be able to commit these atrocities. So, you know, you're not just getting your superhero stuff, you're, you're getting your vegetables with it. Yeah, I think while I have not loved this season as much as the first one, I applaud the show for for taking those big swings. I certainly have not seen um, most of the CW DC shows, but I've seen, you know, I've seen some of the first season of Arrow. I've seen some Flash. I've seen all the first season of Supergirl, etc. And I feel like there's a common thread in those shows that they're kind of built in slightly more old-fashioned style of mission of the week and kind of reset at the end. Yes, you get character growth. Yes, you get twists and turns. Yes, you get surprise reveal that uh, the guy in Supergirl season one is actually John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, which was just a thrilling reveal. Yes. But basically, you kind of reset at the end towards next week's mission of the week. And will Cat Grant find out Kara's secret? Tune in next week to see if she will almost find out again. Versus this, these characters are making decisions where you look back and say, these kids were in, high, well, maybe not uh, Tandy, but Tyrone was in high school last season, which I believe chronologically is like within the last six or eight months of showtime. So, yeah, we have tons of growth and kind of no looking back. To Facebook, Matt, where Robert T. Frost writes in, Matt and Pete... I am really intrigued by our Andre Despair character and his story arc. I've done some reading and learned that in the comics, Despair is a demon. So is that the godhood Andre is ascending toward? It feels like it would fit, especially when considering his vive seems to be acting like a lock preventing growth and not a doorway leading to ascension. I also wonder if instead of people being inside Tyrone's cloak, does the cloak act as a portal to the dark force, much like what happened to Jason Wilkes 
when he was drawn in during the Agent Carter series. According to Marvel and Fandom Wiki, Dark Force seems to be a kind of pocket dimension that exists between the other multiple dimensions that others have drawn into and expelled from. Is Leah dead? Tandy grabs her through the wall with light dagger up near her throat and seems to pull her backwards with a slash. Or do we get a MacGuffin move? Till next time, your friend, Bob. Pete, I know that the notion of uh, Tyrone having these powers and there being that pocket dimension, uh, not called in the show, the Dark Force, but kind of connections to it in the comics and Agent Carter, etc. I know all of that predates where we are at with the Marvel movies now, but it does occur to me hearing Bob's words that we have discussion of potential alternate dimensions of some sort in this show we just had an alternate dimension musing in this week's agents of shield and of course we have that theory put out there from spider-man far from home a theory i still reject although it's out there and maybe they're prepping us for it i don't know you know advertising versus story secrets who knows but we now have the movie end the broadcast tv end and the cable tv end of marvel live action all putting forth uh, alternate dimensions, Pete, maybe I need to change my theory in the face of the facts. It's not as if a TV universe that spans one, two, three, four, four networks at this point and uh, 300 plus hours of TV can't handle the idea of multiple dimensions. So that's in play. That's consistent in the universe in which it's set. So I'd be fine with that. Pete, we need to take an opportunity right now to thank everybody who goes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and helps keep the Cloak and Dagger podcast flying high, flying through the dark force, helping us buy candy to give to Papa Legba uh, when we need to, you know, make our way through the dark force dimension, etc. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to pick from there. Pete, the greatest treat, though, it's always a freebie. How can people talk to you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,468 followers. Can't be wrong. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we're probably going to talk a little Picard series, indeed called Star Trek Picard. Um, the middle of this week, and of course, returning to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. next weekend and finishing things off with the penultimate episode of Season 2 for Cloak and Dagger. If you're here for the Cloak and Dagger, well, we'll talk to you again in a week. With that, Pete, I'm going to say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Time for you to scat and take your friends with you. <laughs> <laughs>